HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to the first show of the new season. I'm so excited to be here. On each podcast, I interview an extraordinary person on how they've navigated their way through life to come to a place where they find happiness and fulfillment. This often involves a ton of missteps, course corrections, divots, possible derangement, but ends up in a really great place. And today my guest is someone who was at one time addicted to alcohol, pot, cigarettes. She was bulimic. She was depressed. And sitting here in front of me, I have someone who, after all of those challenges, is smiling in the most peaceful, beatific way. She invented her own recovery, and that recovery is the foundation of an extraordinary business that is going to grow and that you are going to hear so much about. But you're going to have heard about it first, perhaps here on Speaking Broadly. My guest today is Holly Whitaker, and her unbelievable company is called Hip Sobriety. Welcome, Holly. Hi. Thank you so much for having me and all those kind words. Oh, there's more kind words to come. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so funny because it's my business now, talking about my recovery, and I'll go and I'll tell somebody about my story, and then they're like, wow, thanks for sharing that. And I was like, yeah, on to the next, because it's just, I don't take a moment to really absorb that and how that might come across to somebody else for the first time. To me, it's not extraordinary anymore. It's just so typical to talk about, so it was really lovely to kind of hear you say it the way you just said it. I think that your sense of appreciation is part of why you are in the place you are today because you have appreciation not only for the journey that you've had but the struggle that everybody goes through as they're facing the challenges inherent in recovery and addiction. So 
I want to go back to that place that actually feels to you quite long ago mm-hmm. and is because we're talking about 2012. Yeah. But sometimes mental time and actual time attenuate and feel quite different. And I think yeah. 2012 now for you feels like, wow, was that me? Because mm-hmm. it's so different. But can you take your mind back and describe to us like in 2012, which you call the peak of your addictions? What was that like? What were you dealing with on a daily basis? I mean, I think it's really important to state that I like I don't remember most of 2011. I was so dissociated from I was just going through the motions in 2012, kind of the first part of it. I, I feel the same. And so describing it, I don't know how I made it through and I don't know what my daily life was like. But um, I'd had an eating disorder. I mean, I Wait, can I, we just pause? It? Sure. You don't remember. <laughs> and you don't have those ideas. Is that because of the blur of alcohol and addiction? Or is it because really like you just you don't remember Mm, if I can be graphic for just a second um when you are binging and purging like the only way I can describe this is I would have an episode where I was it's not just being drunk and 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 being high and being disassociated there's also like the disassociation that you make when you can't live with yourself and you when you're doing things just to make it by but you're also not reconciling that you're doing those things and you can't reconcile that like you're off doing this one thing and your soul is like tucked away somewhere inside you and you're just not connected and so when I would I would go and I would get a grocery bag full of food and then I would eat it as quickly as possible and then I would throw it up and then I would clean up the scene and like while I was doing the whole thing I would like close my eyes and I wouldn't look at the scene until it was clean it was so painful I couldn't be there and so I think 2010 was like the start of this downward spiral and then 2011 was being so drenched in it and then 2012 was like hitting the bottom of it and then it was also the rise from it and so I don't remember the year 2011 the way that most people might remember a year I wasn't here if that makes any sense and so at what point did you open your eyes right you said you hit Mm. a rock bottom Does that like connect to a moment in your mind or is it a a series of events in which you said, okay, I'm done now? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was just these things like that were piling up that I couldn't really look away from and it was getting harder to keep it all together and I was really sick. I mean, I was 33 and my body was physically very ill. I was not sleeping. I was working. I was, I was at multiple addictions. I mean, it was just, it was not going well, but you know, I think there were moments of like having this recognition that like I was coming to the end of something that I'd been trying to keep up. I had run out of duct tape and, and I wasn't able to keep it a secret. I wasn't able to, I just wasn't able to keep it together anymore. And I think like the things I remember were a trip to Mexico where I was with one of my good friends and it was his 40th birthday. And I just remember him talking about his friend that wasn't there because his friend had stopped drinking. And I had this like, like it was just like a collision of a moment of being like, this might be my last trip to Mexico and like drinking in a pool. And why would it be your last trip? Because I just saw myself in his friend's story. And I was like, and to me, this is why it's so important, like the way that my company approaches addiction at this point and the way we talk about it. To me, it was just like, that was it. My life was over. I would never get to do these things again. I would be this guy that was sitting back in the Midwest somewhere, not able to join the party because he couldn't help himself and he was around alcohol. And he just had to sit out the rest of it. Because this is what I prioritized and valued. And so I had that moment. And then I had a moment when I was in Costa Rica not long after that with a friend. I mean, I was doing things that were shocking myself. When I would get drunk, I would just do things that totally shocked myself. It was something that was so painful and I, I couldn't believe I would, you know, like I would drink in the morning and like things like this just started to get really slippery and blurry. And like I was in Costa Rica with one of my girlfriends and I just was 
jokingly but seriously said, if I don't stop drinking when I get back or if I don't change my relationship, I'm going to need an intervention. And she laughed it off. And I was like, but this is a very, like, I mean, she just, we all she didn't kind know what of, to do. but she also, I also ran in a circle of people that like I drank the same as, you know? And so mm. it was also just like, I hit a lot of my more shocking behaviors, but my drinking was on par with my friends and my group, my group of friends. And I think this is like a, another big piece of this, which is that it like dysfunctional drinking, it's so normalized. And we kind of also like find people that drink like us that we can just so easily say, well, I'm not as bad as them or they're doing it too. And so like this person like that I said this to didn't have that much healthy of a relationship outwardly appearing than I did. And so, so anyways, there was that. And then it was just like the skid to a halt. Like in, in September 2012, um, I was working on a really, really big project at work and I've been working every single weekend. And I think I just, I uh, was on my way to a friend's house on Sunday night that my my product partner and I was just so, I just, expo- like I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I had been like previously in a romantic relationship with the head of our company and on the way to do this like like the same thing every weekend like working every weekend for as long as I could remember at that point I just I like basically called the CEO of the company and then called my boss and just was like you know like quit my job kind of like on the uh, road that's <laughs> like it was just like the pressure of it was building and I just was so desperate and I didn't know what to do I couldn't figure out what was bleeding and I didn't quit my job they both gave me a week off and they were like you know this is you probably just need some time but it was just like at any moment it is just going to implode and so my ultimate bottom was I just I would go on benders I would like start on a Thursday or a Friday I would work through the weekend I would drink I would balance that drinking out with smoking pot and with caffeine and and with binging and purging and it would sometimes carry through to the next week and I woke up on a Tuesday morning and I think probably September or October of 2012 it was October early October 2012 and it was just like I, I would outwardly appearing I was a director at a company I had a great career I seemed together and I woke up in my apartment and I didn't have sheets on my bed and my apartment was full of trash because it had been four days of like just working eating purging drinking and like smoking my nightstand was like literally an ashtray I had just gone outside the ashtray and I was just there there was like joints and cigarettes and ashes just like the whole top of it was covered there were bags of takeout food and trash like just littered across the apartment like there was beer like spilled and stuck to the floor I woke up in my bed it had no sheets And it had like a goose down comforter and my TV was still on. My laptop was still on and I had like a pint of Jameson in my hand and there was still some in it. Like, and I had a meeting to lead and it was a work day morning and I was so, I was probably still drunk and I was like hungover and I just, I mean, it's as like cliche as it gets, but I just like screamed. I fell on the floor. I screamed. I cried and I asked for help. I mean, I just screamed like, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I just broke and like screamed like for God to help me and I didn't believe in God and and just like you know like drooled it was just like the ugly cry of like in the middle of like my squalor and like I and then I picked myself up and I got ready and I went to work and that was like this you know I mean that is it was just this moment it's like it was so if that was if that was the bottom yeah um that seems like a rough 
rough, <laughs> rough place to land. But then one of the things that's so interesting is all this time that you were drinking and smoking, you were also working really hard. So these two yeah. things coexisted within you, right? The, yeah, the, the denial, <laughs> the denial and the success, which I think is so interesting mm. because at some point, mm-hmm. 2012, October, you chose to take the part of you that knew how to succeed mm-hmm. and you focused on that part, right? Because project it, managed it, it you know. right? You kind of, right. exactly. <laughs> and not everybody has that duality, you know, that they really are killing it. A lot mm-hmm. of people who face these challenges, the challenges uh, swamp them in every way. Mm-hmm. But how did you, in fact, project manage your way out of that low? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just this piece of that I think is really important in everyone's journey, which is just that moment was a moment of surrender. I had been trying to keep it all together for so long, and I was not going to relinquish. I was not going to go to rehab. I was not going to, you know, it wasn't like that moment on the floor was when I was like, hmm, maybe something's wrong. I knew something was wrong. I just was refusing to do something about it. And it was surrender. That's what surrender is. Surrender is saying I can't do it and I need help, even if it's to nobody. When I said that, Whatever it was, the intention within me, the energy within me, the answer to the call that I was making to the universe, to God, to whatever, it just was answered. It was answered really quickly. And these events like very quickly unfolded after this. Like it's just so random, but I like went to go get my my Starbucks sandwich and my coffee and to come back and like get myself together to go to work right after that like whole scene. And then when I walked into my building, like still, you know, alcohol, when you're hungover and you've been hungover for like a couple years, you just have like this slowness and this fogginess in your brain and, and things sometimes seem really distorted. And I walked into the lobby of my building that morning and there was this guy from that I worked with that that I didn't work with anymore standing in the lobby of my building with my building manager and I was like what are you doing here and like like literally not even a half hour after that whole scene and he's like I'm moving into this building and it was like you know 9 a.m or 8 30 a.m on a Tuesday morning and then he and I took a walk and and not to go deep into that story because it's a really long story but the whole point of it is, is that that conversation I had with him led to a conversation I had with a friend a couple nights later whose kids I was babysitting for. A guy was a doctor. I worked with him who then brought up the possibility of borderline personality disorder. And then hearing the words borderline personality disorder, disorder, like the second I heard them, I was like, I feel like that's what I have, even though I had no idea what it was. And then that night when this man whose kids I was babysitting for went to dinner with his wife I looked at borderline personality disorder and I had like the markers of it like eight out of nine and and I don't I was never diagnosed with it but like this is kind of how addiction goes it just mimics a lot of personality disorders and it's really hard to pull it apart but when I researched borderline personality disorder it was like oh I potentially have you know a severe mental illness and that was relieving that was more palatable than alcoholism like I could work with a mental illness. I couldn't work with alcoholism. To me, alcoholism, because of all the ideas we have about willpower and this like relapsing person that just spends their life trying not to drink and that eventually dies from it. 
20 years later and we know this story right like but it's just to me I was like I can handle the mental illness I cannot handle the alcoholism and reading about borderline personality disorder opened up like it it basically said don't drink if you want to get this under control do not drink so I bought two books that night and one of them was stop walking on eggshells or something some borderline personality disorder book and the other was um, the easy way to control alcohol by Alan Carr so that's a very long way of saying my introduction into like project managing my addiction and kind of doing it on my own started with reading a book that changed my subconscious beliefs around alcohol and the story is like really fast but like I read that book and then within a couple of weeks I decided it wasn't even that I couldn't drink anymore it was that I no longer wanted to drink it changed my entire appreciation of and understanding of what alcohol is and it made me absolutely never want to drink again so that's part of it but not all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by that pivot because I think that so many people struggle at exactly that point, right? Like talking about what AA talks about, which is you're an addict forever. Mm-hmm. And I think you were relieved of that narrative that you are not an addict forever. Yeah. And you've founded a company on this notion yeah. of self-recovery, accessibility, social proof, not anonymity. Yeah. All of which are really important, but I think that they start with this notion that you're not an addict forever. Yeah, and we don't even use the word addict. I mean, like, and people don't even, like, people call themselves addicts, but, like, we don't label, we are really encouraging for people to figure out whatever labels work for them. I think, like, I was fortunate enough, like, before I went down the road of claiming this identity as an alcoholic, I was introduced to a concept that said, maybe there's something wrong with you. Maybe there's something wrong with what we've been conditioned to do. Maybe there's something wrong with some other stuff. Like, I mean, this gets to the root of like, what are the root causes of people who drink too much? Or Yeah. I'm curious about that. This is like kind of the crux of it, right? AA was founded in the 1930s. People that use our program also use AA. And I think like it's really important to kind of set this out before I start talking about this, that any way that anybody finds relief is a, is great. Like we need to be more supportive. You know, you will find that there is a lot of, you know, this is the one right way. And, and I, that's changed a bit. There's been a lot of different like modalities that have emerged in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, women for sobriety, there's rational recovery, there's integral recovery. There's like, you know, I could go on and list all these different ways, uh, refuge recovery. But there is still, because AA is, you know, it was developed in the 30s when there was really no known treatment. It was what really, like, drove the the understanding of the word sobriety, alcoholism. It really is, and, and it established itself as the one way nobody was treating in any sort of meaningful way addiction. And, and it kind of takes it and runs with, like, this idea of being the way that people recover from addiction. And because of that, and because it's also not changed, it's remained like intact since its like inception. The big book hasn't changed. It's been expanded upon. The 12 steps haven't changed. And it's also decentralized, meaning it's like not governed by a central body. Each individual meeting or like a chapter, you know, or meeting group will, you know, set the terms. But the, the point is that it has like gained this traction and it's how we think about addiction right when I was recovering people that had never struggled with addiction themselves and didn't even know anybody that had struggled with addiction 
like assumed that I should be doing AA and working a 12-step program. And there is this idea like this is the one way and this is how it works. And if you don't do this program, you're in denial of your addiction. Like, you know, like the, the first step is, you know, like admitting that you're an alcoholic, right? And so society believes and we've all kind of bought into this. And this is like very specific with alcohol, right? Because you're supposed to consume alcohol. It's a rite of passage, especially in America. It is something that we are like expected to do. It's a weird thing if you don't drink. It's like the one drug that you have to explain why you don't use it. And so we're supposed to use it. We're also supposed to like use it responsibly and not go off the deep end with it and have a, a successful relationship with it. And we don't really go into it with like an idea of like informed consent of you know what it does to you or like the same way you might if you were to take a prescription. And so we have this like this binary with it. Like there's normal drinkers and then there's alcoholics. And alcoholics, there's nothing wrong with the alcohol. There's something wrong with the person. And we don't really say that about cigarettes. We don't say that about cocaine. Like, we don't say that about heroin. Well, we really do specifically say this about alcohol. And so it drives this like binary of there's something wrong with the individual. And this is what like because AA has been so prolific and like again, coming back to this, it's helped many, many people. It's also not helped many people. But like it has kind of been the way and because of that and because of the assertions that it's that it makes we have an allergy to the substance we are not normal we are alcoholics it like takes the blame and it like places it on the individual and it's like something's wrong with you and so because of that we just focus on the individual and we try and pull it apart and we're like well why would they be that way why would they not be able to ingest ethanol and we just like try and focus on that and then it, it silos off that these people that struggle with this live in a society within a culture and, and that they're responding to those things and working within those things. Like coming back to what you said is like, you know, what causes addiction? And, and when I when we try and pull it apart, the way we explain it in our program, we use something that's called the um, psychobiosocial model. It just means psychology, biology, sociology. But the idea is that it's the biology, it's the psychology, it's the sociology. It's like, it's not just one thing. And so when you're looking at an individual, I mean, all people reach outside of themselves. All people have addictions to some degree. We all use something outside of ourselves, some externality in order to, to manage ourselves and manage our energy and make it through this life. And some of those things are very healthy things. Like the old, old definitions of addiction were positive and negative. People could have addictions to the church. They could have addictions to like service. Like I could currently like be said is like having an addiction to helping people recover from addiction. And so like my life is given to it. Right. And that would be like in the old old definition of addiction I would fall into that but it would be a healthy thing because it's contributing to society so we try and like boil it down and there's no alcoholic gene like specifically talking about alcohol there's just like there's a human that grew up in a culture with like some sort of genetic predisposition if we're talking about alcohol specifically you know like genetically are you programmed to respond to alcohol in a way that you have a low tolerance or a high tolerance um are you a resilient person or does it take you time to like get up off your feet after you've been knocked down and then you go into like what were the cultural beliefs that you were raised in what did your parents model to you what was your peer group like you know did you grow up with access to systems or were you disenfranchised did you learn coping mechanisms like there's like there's all of these things that develop in each of us individually and separately and how we develop determines what whether or not and to the extent which we'll need to use things outside of ourselves to manage ourselves and we'll try different things. And some of us, I mean, I've been gambling. I haven't become addicted to gambling, nor do I think would I ever. And, you know, but like some Did that people. Make you nervous at all? 
No, I just never, yeah. it's boring. <laughs> like, it's just not like, and this is why there's a unique fit for a lot of us. We'll go out and we'll find like, ah, like that does it for me. And so for me, the unique fit was alcohol. And the thing is with a chemical, if it's alcohol, if it's, you know, like an illicit drug, if it's a chemical, like even coffee, but like, let's just say alcohol, if it's, if it's alcohol, um, and you use that and you find, oh, this does the trick. This either like allows me to socialize more freely or this like allows me to not be so anxious or maybe this just like allows me to make dinner when I get home from work. Whatever it does, it soothes this thing that feels off. What happens is if we start using it over time, it just exacerbates all those other things. So again, like coming on to like the drivers that make us reach outside of ourselves, like for instance, if like depression is one of those things, it's going to exacerbate depression. And then what do we do? We reach outside and back for it. And so the drivers of it are as much the society we live in, as much as like the individual ways we were raised, the way our biology is how much meaning we have and you know like it's just I mean I could go on and on but it's as much as makes us human that's a lot of options <laughs> that you've laid out there um thank you for that we're going to take a quick break and when we come back believe it or not we're going to get to the hedonistic side because one of the fascinating things I think about Holly's approach is if you decide that alcohol isn't something that you want as part of your life it's not like you're signing off of a great life that fear that holly had way back when in mexico that she'd be that miserable guy in the midwest <laughs> you know with nothing to do and the fear of being drawn into an unfortunate incident that doesn't have to be you and one of the reasons that i dwell on that here on speaking broadly is that in the food industry we have a really really difficult time with alcohol the the servers are and back of the house are around alcohol all the time. And it feels like, you know, what would life be like if we weren't drinking? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in some ways, this conversation with Holly seems outside of this world of food and hospitality. And it's other, but it's actually critical and crucial. And to understand how you can live positively, happily, and without that feeling of either deprivation or judgment is important. And that's what we're going to delve into after the break. So be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Speaking Broadly, the first episode of the season, and I am very happy in what is called Dry January yeah. to have uh, Holly Whitaker here with me in the studio. I had never heard of Dry January. Is that something that's been around for a long time? 
No. I mean, I think it started, you know, there was like something, there's something called Hello Sunday Morning. And Hello Sunday Morning is a group of people in New Zealand that just go on three months, like alcohol freeze. Um, and they call it like, I'm doing a Hello Sunday Morning. And it's just meant to explore life. And the founder of it drinks. They're, they're not about like not drinking. They're about mindful drinking. And I think that then after that happened, I want to say it then moved to the UK. They have higher levels of, of addiction and, and more people drink in the UK. It's just like it's, it's worse than it is here. I think they start, it started in the UK because they were just trying to have awareness around alcohol. And then it's come to the United States in the last couple of years. But like when I was researching it, no one was doing it in the United States. And it was something that I wanted to try and do and like a, a, a movement I wanted to try and lead that I quickly abandoned but um, <laughs> um <laughs> why is that well, I guess it existed that's one reason to abandon it but um no I mean I think like no I wanted to like get a bunch of my friends that were like sobriety people like to kind of promote it together and put a course together but I think it was just I don't know probably other priorities and also I, I think that dry January it's this interesting thing it is you know sometimes dry January is just about waiting for like February 1st and it's you know <laughs> <laughs> right that's not really solving a problem it's right. it's a nice little challenge yeah yeah and I, I like I think I have mixed feelings about it um but it's I not something you, I really I, promote you know I was asking you because I figured you would have mixed feelings yeah. about it because well because it's just it's setting a, a timer yeah on something that actually should be a lifestyle not a timer so let's talk about <laughs> the ways in which you embrace this notion of hedonist and not prohibitionist one of the things you love to do is travel I mean you love Italy almost more than anyone I've ever met I said it like 10 times yeah (laughs) I think yes and um and Italy for you for a long time was identified with amazing food and amazing Mm -hmm. wine how did your relationship with travel change and how did you keep it joyful I've never had alcohol in Italy, actually. You've never had alcohol? No. I grew up, like, I was, I've been obsessed with Italy since, like, I read Agony and the Ecstasy. And also, I really got into wine when I was in my early 20s. And so, I grew up in California. I went to school in San Luis Obispo, and, like, that's, like, Edna Valley and close to Santa Barbara, and... I ended up finishing school in Santa Cruz, so Santa Cruz Mountain Wine. I mean, I was, like, literally just, like, always rolling in, like, wine tours. And so <laughs> I I wanted to, for a while, I considered being an enologist. I had books on wine, and I specifically had books on Italian wine. There was always this fascination around wine. It felt like this way into being somebody, right? Like, part of a persona I was building, you know, of, like, the career trajectory. I lived in, you know, like, moving in San Francisco, like, having the right clothes, having the right friends, having a wine fridge, you know, or whatever. So I think, like, there was this, like, specific obsession around Italy and then the Wait, irony how of it. Cha- how did that change, right? Like, anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, the irony of it is that I quit drinking in my first trip to Sicily was in um, July 2013. And my, my, like, I finally quit drinking for good in April 2013. So not even like three months before I quit drinking I finally went to the motherland and didn't have wine but what is that like like? (laughs) I don't know how to say it other than to say like I didn't even like that first trip was hard for sure I mean this was before I learned that other people's discomfort with my not drinking was their problem and not my problem and I think when you're the sober person and you're going on wine tours and like you're sitting around and, and you're the sober person and everyone's drinking and like you are a like kind of a flashlight on other people's potential problematic drinking. It just is. It brings it up, not for everybody, but if somebody has a crappy relationship with alcohol, they are not going to 
be super comfortable with you deciding not to drink alcohol. And so I think like I was still like new at navigating those conversations, but I just was also so like in love with life. I mean, I thought I I thought I was going to die. Like a year before that was like Costa Rica. I thought my life was done and I thought like it would either like it was so alcohol centric and I think this is like the most like this is the part, right? We put alcohol at the center. This is a construct. It's not like it's actually the way it is. It's a construct. We prioritize it into this thing and we think well we can't like oh my god like what do you do in Italy without well what do you do in Italy without wine like I mean everything how about pasta (laughs) oh my god like (laughs) yes yes I've eaten my way through Italy and I like everything that you can imagine doing in Italy you can do and wine to me just because I made a conscious decision like this is not important to me anymore like I can live and be happy and eat really well and have you know, great sex and have like great dates and have a great life and and not have wine wrapped up in the story. And when you make that decision, then the reality follows. And so for me, like that first trip, like while I was still navigating it, the funny thing is that was where at the end of my meal, every waiter brought me a free like limoncello or like grappa or like tried to like, you know, bring me a free house wine. And like, it just was like coming at me left and right. Like my energy was still caught up in it. I was still trying to like, I was nervous about that trip, but I went back in April, May, and June of 2014, and I quit my job, and I went there for an extended period, and, like, it just didn't even come up, you know? It, like, just... It must be sort of a relief. I wonder if you replaced all that energy and the study and the self being wrapped up in wine with being wrapped up in being um, an entrepreneur, because really that's what your energy has been invested in in the last six years, really. Yeah is starting this amazing company and reading every single thing that you can and talking to all the people you can. And I mean, it just seems like this notion of like dominating a category, you moved it from, you know, intellectual side of alcohol to the the company that you built. Well, I mean, I think like it's, it gets fair to say like my whole life wasn't wrapped up in wine. Like before I like also (laughs) was like really wrapped up in being successful in my career. And I think it's just, I'm an extremist and that's the part of it. But I jumped into this because like, it was almost like the perfect intersection of my background was in healthcare. My, my job at the time was director of revenue cycle management, which means nothing except that I was really focused on the healthcare industry and, and how, how people got sick and how people got well and how we paid for that. And when I got sick and the healthcare industry was not something I could turn to and the options that were outside of it that I was supposed to use, like AA, were not for me either. There was this like just this startling adventure through being completely on the outside, like like struggling with something that three million people a year die from and like struggling from something that is like the fourth leading cause of preventable death in the United States and having to like piece it together by myself without a support system because I didn't go the way that like the one way that I was supposed to go. So I think that there was just this like there was a horror and an anger at that and that it was also juxtaposed against my mom's own battle with cancer and all the support she got and the way her insurance card worked and the way we walked the Susan G. Komen and the way, like, all of the parallels between that. And there was the missing of the mark. There was the fact that the work I was doing should have covered addiction. Like, the company I worked at should have known how to deal with addiction and didn't. 
And my job should have known how to deal with addiction and I didn't. And so I was like investing all my time in building something that failed me. And I was looking at how other people had experiences that were more palatable and how they were served. And also the other piece of this, and I think this is like a really important to state, the other piece of this was there was this like this epiphany around alcohol and how much we just assume we can't live without it. Like to me, it was honestly like we've been duped into believing alcohol is like this thing that's necessary in order to have a happy life. And all of that came together. And that was when you stop drinking and like, and stop using drugs and stop, you know, like, like when, like all the things I did, like, it took time and so much you had a lot time. more time you had a lot more time on I your more hands. time on my hands right yeah. and and also there was just like this perfect place for my passion to go like when I see people suffering and dying from addiction and when I read the news stories and I see the way we still think about it and look at it largely and um I wrote a piece when Philip Seymour Hoffman died I, I had quit my job but I hadn't decided I was going to start this company and when Philip Seymour Hoffman died and I started seeing the sensationalism of it and also this just like this discussion around well it's just his demons that got him and like this same old trope and the same old idea and also that like like his only choice was AA and that may not have been for him and the way that we all like just look over there and we think something's wrong with that guy instead of what's wrong with our society instead of what's wrong with the way we couldn't have supported him and why was he the like why was he sick why why did he need to use drugs and how is this unfolding in our lives in these other ways and how is this unfolding around us I think there was just this like just anger at the way that we that people that struggle with addiction are treated and written off and talked about and the way it's just like a their problem and it's not an us thing so let's just I'm curious because you took all that anger Mm-hmm. And you you focused it on building something. What is it for listeners? I'm always so so curious. Like, what is your takeaway about the things that you needed to have in line to build your company? Like, aside from the passion, which is clear, the anger, which is very motivating, yeah, the time because you got a lot of it back, yeah. But what else was it? You know, for all those entrepreneurs out there, like, what else did you feel like you needed that you got together? the ingredient? Well, I think it was finally believing that I could do it, you know. I'd always like been in relationships with really powerful men and I I always perceived that I could never stand in front of a room and lead it. I was always a behind the scenes kind of person, you know, that wanted to lead so badly. Like the work of not numbing your way through life is the work of like confronting all of the things within you all the limitations that you thought you had. If you can quit drinking, like if I could do what I did, I could do anything. And that was a huge part of this. And I think like so many of us, we like live in the safe little bubble of our comfort zone. I I thought I can't leave my job. I can't leave the security of this paycheck. I can't ask people for money. I can't, I can't figure out a business plan. I can't get people to believe in this. I can't, you know, like it was just like all these like limitations we stack on ourselves without even trying. And it was just like, life is so short and this world is our playground. Like we can jump and we can fall and we can get back up again there was there was just this this refusal to be limited by like everything I had placed on myself and this refusal to like take no for an answer and this refusal to like really give a care if people didn't believe in it I believed in it 
And that was enough. You know, there's this quote, uh, a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, and it was, it's God doesn't make his work manifest by cowards. I think I just slaughtered it a little bit. But the idea is like God does not give his work to cowards means if you have it in you, it's not a mistake, right? And like it's given to you in order to bring it through you. And it's not about you usually. Like at the end of the day, the thing that keeps me going is like believing that something is being channeled, that the experiences I had were not an accident. They were for a reason. They were given divinely to me the combination of everything I'd experienced and also the desire to want to lead a company and also in the addiction space and use my life as the like base of it like the chaos and the way it all came together and formed into this like beautiful vision that made sense to me I mean there was just this like this is my duty to do this it's the combination of realizing this is a responsibility when you're given a creative vision or when you're given like a desire or a passion and it's weird or like it's especially if it's weird like that's a (laughs) duty to bring forth like you're a vessel you're a channel you're the faucet not the water and so that's part of it and then also just realizing what do I really have to lose right like what is it that I at the end of the day what do I have to lose by going for this so let's talk about one of your most important phrases and that's how how we'll we'll end along with paying it forward but um love is the most important thing to you yeah um why is that did you see what I wrote on Instagram I did. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, think it's, I think it's important context to say that you asked me, why do I sign everything with love? And I thought about it, like, I think my immediate response was, because I do. But to me, like, I had to think about it. First of all, I think one of the most important pieces of it is, is the population that I work with. And alcohol addiction or all addictions are so, like, strongly tied into morality, like this idea that we're moral degenerates if we're, you know, like like somebody that you see on the street that keeps shooting up and is like like doing God knows what in order to pay for drugs or someone that like under the influence drives their car and kills a family and they're alive to deal with it. I mean, this is a thing that happens. I work with people that have done potentially terrible and horrible things. And I have done terrible and horrible things like to myself. And while I was in it, this, if I was going to work and saying, oh yeah, well last night I slept in my bed with no sheets and I puked and I, you know what I mean? Like the, like humans are disgusting. And like addiction is especially this thing that can be like super disgusting. And so the love comes from, it's like the Christ love or the Martin Luther King love or like the Gandhi love of just the the love no matter what, right? It's the it's the love that you have that like it's your duty to have for people. In doing the work that I do, at the end of the day, it's about seeing the basic goodness that we all share and reminding people that they have it because the problem with people is not that they're so like full of themselves and like full of their love. The problem is that they have forgotten that they have that. They forget that they're already redeemed. They forget that worth isn't earned. They forget that they're just inherently worthy. So I always ask my guests to highlight someone who they admire, who who they think other people should know about. It could be an author. It could be a chef. it, It could be someone who's inspired you, but not your mother. Yeah, I think it's Stephanie Snyder. Um, She has a wonderful TED Talk. She's a yoga teacher out of San Francisco, and I found her in my darkest hours. I found her TED Talk, and then I took classes from her on Yoga Glow, and then I went to her real-life classes and learned and and took yoga teacher training from her. But I think she's just, she's sober, and she has an incredible story. She's this beautiful human in every possible way, and she, to me, is the real deal. She lives it. She lives what she teaches. And so I would say Stephanie Snyder, find her, follow her, go to her classes. That's great. (laughs) And where can people find you? 
So our company is now rebranded to Tempest. And so you can go to jointempest.com. And we also have a media site called uh, The Temper. So just thetemper.com. That's media dedicated to focusing on dismantling the idea that, you know, alcohol is the only thing worth doing in society. And so, um, and also on, uh, I'm active on Instagram. So at Holly on Instagram. Just at Holly? Yeah, just at Holly. It's amazing that you could get just at Holly. <laughs> Friends. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. It was lucky. That's impressive. <laughs> um, uh, you guys know where to find me at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter and at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. As always, welcome your comments and thoughts, suggestions for people who you'd love to hear more from about how they've navigated their way through life to get to a happy place. And... That's it. Have a great week and see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.